Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer of supplication. And as you're turning in your Bibles, and I'll invite you to turn in the Word of God to 1 Peter as we continue in this series in 1 Peter, the epistle of the Apostle Peter to the church. You know, homecoming is always made sweeter when we have the blessing of former members that make their way back to share and worshiping with us. And, and I look back there and saw uh, Julie Dagenhart and her uh, kids. And Julie, it's always great to have you and, and uh, JP and Allie and, and Ethan with us. And, uh, and thank you for coming to share in our uh, homecoming activities today. And then also uh, Patsy Forrester. Of course, now Patsy is an honorary member. Uh, we made her a member again. Uh, because we're getting used to you being here, Patsy, and just it's great to have you here. But we just thank God for those that have felt motivated to be back here with us and just reconnect with us because they're always, you're always a part of us in our hearts and our minds, and we thank God for you. You know, uh, this morning as I direct your attention to chapter 2 of 1 Peter, uh, it's interesting, in the previous messages in chapter 1, particularly last time or last week, Chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, we were looking, or the Apostle Peter was directing our focus, if you will, in the minds of the early Christians upon their relationship with God. Speaking of God as that transcendent and holy God, and, and challenging us as God's people to be holy as He is holy. That's God's expectation for His people. It's not just an Old Testament concept, ladies and gentlemen. It's something that God expects of His people today. But also in addition to that challenge, the Apostle Peter, as, and as he helped us to look at our relationship with God, he also challenged us to see God in an intimate way, as we call Him Father, and, and as we express our love and dependence upon Him and our deep reverence uh, for Him and respect for Him. And, and, and Peter talked about that, and that's important that we see that. But as he shifts today in chapter 2, and we'll be looking at that beginning in verse 1, you'll notice that Peter tends to direct our attention now more towards our glorious relationship with God the Son, speaking of Jesus Christ and our Savior. And, and as he does, he helps us to appreciate the place that we have in this divine, wonderful Gracious relationship that God has made possible for us to enjoy with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we'll see it in a different perspective. You'll see what I mean in just a minute as we move forward. But it helps us not only to appreciate the role that we have in our relationship with Christ. In this very deeply personal, intimate relationship we have with Jesus as He abides within us. But He also helps us to understand our place in the body of Christ. In the church. In a way maybe you've not thought about before. You see, as we look at ourselves, we're going to need to look from God's perspective. And that's what Peter's helping us to do. He's, as you might look at a picture or you might look at a piece of art and you want to go and look at it from different angles and different perspectives to ga gather a full appreciation for what you're really seeing. That's what Peter's doing. He's panning around this relationship so, so that we might see our, our the the. the, 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 the the miracle of this relationship we have with God, the Father and God the Son, in relation to the body of the Christ. But before he does, it's interesting, before he launches into that, he, he gives a word of, of exhortation, if you will. Very beginning of chapter 2 there, because he, he, he calls the attention of the early believers 
If we're going to be who we're called to be as the people of God in this, in this pagan world, in this lost and sin-darkened world, it's so important that we be prepared. I promise you, those of you that were watching college football and you'll be watching NFL football this afternoon, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. These fellows didn't just walk off the street and put on a uniform and get out there on the field and go to hitting each other and running and doing the things they do. This, this comes in the, as a culmination of months of intense training and preparation. But guess what? God calls upon us to be prepared, to, to subject ourselves to this kind of spiritual preparation or readiness, if you will, because it's essential for the Christian to be effective. In order, in order for you and I to be effective in the body of Christ and effective out in the world, we have got to subject ourselves to what I call, and you'll see the believer's preparation as we look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Peter says, therefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. I want to just stop and, and, and help you to see. Again, Peter starts a segment of the scripture, therefore. He's pointing us back to chapter 1 and says, as you have looked at all the eternal blessings and you've considered all the wonderful benefits that are yours as a child of God, but also those divine dictates that God has given us in chapter 1. He says, therefore, knowing that, realizing that, and accepting that, get yourself ready. Get prepared. Be spiritually ready. And Peter goes on to tell us how we do that as God's people. God's people determined to purge their, their lives of sin. There's no place in the life of a believer, no place in the life of a church for unrepentant sin. And Peter categorically begins to list some of those sins as he talks about. And let's take a look at some of those listed. He's saying, when you look at your life, look for evidence of, of, of these types of sins. And this is not a conclusive List is just an example he's given of some of the categories of sin. For instance, malice, which is a general word for sin and disobedience to God. He says, don't let there be any kind of malice in your life, but then deceit. In other words, being dishonest in your relationships and your expressions and your dealings with others. Envy, a very subtle and yet a dangerous form, a very potent form of sin that often leads to bitterness. And I'm going to tell you something, it is a fellowship Buster for sure. And a lot of times it causes people to have hard feelings towards one another. Slander or evil speaking, depend upon your translation that you're reading from. Peter says, don't let there be any semblance of slander, which oftentimes denote hypocritical talking. How do you talk about people? Do you give conscious consideration to the words that come out of your mouth when you begin to speak about somebody else? Could I remind you that the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That it might benefit whoever listens. Be careful what you say, especially about other people. So he says, don't let any kind of slander, because slander tends to defame the character of other people. And I'll tell you, it's another fellowship buster Peter is saying, rid yourself of every semblance of all of these sins and any other sin. And how do you do that, ladies and gentlemen? You don't go take a bath. There's no ceremonial cleansing that will take, play, take, take care of the matter of sin in your life. There's only one way to deal with the presence of sin. Number one, you have to confess it. And that's agree to God that there is sin. Name it. Call it out. God knows what it is. 
He's waiting on you to say it. And then once you confess that sin, you've got to put it into action. You've got to do something about it. We call that repentance, where you turn your back on that sin. That sinful habit, that sinful attitude, that sinful relationship. Listen, this is a part of the spiritual preparation. You cannot be the child of God. You cannot be the man of God, the woman of God. You cannot be the family of God. And certainly you can't be the church of God if you have not subjected yourselves to spiritual preparation, dealing with the presence of sin. Folks, let me tell you something. Without going extensively into this, what you've just heard is the, is the formula for genuine biblical revival. You want to know why so many churches are having so-called revival meetings and they're getting all jazzed up and having emotional meetings and everybody feels good with these uh, positive you know, uh, speakers coming in and, and, and great music and they go back and live their lives just like they did before is because they're not dealing with the presence of sin. Revival will never come into a person's life, never come into a church until you get serious about dealing with the presence of sin. And that's the formula for dealing with sin. Go back and look in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. You've heard me quote that enough that I'm sure most members of the church know it. But then after we have dealt with the presence of sin, there's more to preparation. It's, it's consciously putting off sin. You know, the early Christians, in their observance of the ordinance of baptism, we're told from church historians that the early Christians, when they came forth, the candidates for baptism would actually take the clothes that they were baptized in and they would get rid of them. After they were baptized, they would put on a brand new set of clothes, absolutely clean, as if to say, I'm rid with the old. I'm, I've gotten shed off. And that's what Peter's saying. He says, get rid of all of this. Lay it aside. And that's what they would do. They'd lay aside those clothes that they got baptized in and they would put on brand new clothes. Isn't that some, something similar to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 when he says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he or she is a brand new creation. A brand new creation. You're not the same person that you were before you came under the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. And that's a part of spiritual preparation is making that conscious, intentional separation from the presence of sin in our lives. Does that mean that you're perfect then? No. You'll never be perfect until you're there in heaven in the presence of the Lord in your glorified body, ladies and gentlemen. But in the meantime, you still deal with the presence of sin so that you can be prepared as a child of God. Not only are God's people determined to purge their lives of sin, but the children of God yearn for the Word of God. The children of God yearn for the Word of God. Look at verses 2 and 3. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Anyone that's raising babies or have raised babies, and you certainly know that um, babies like milk. And um, someone once observed that infants... Young babies are only concerned about two things. Input and output. And if you take care of those two needs, basically you got a pretty content baby. Well, we're not going to talk about the output part today, but we're going to focus upon this idea of baby. It's interesting to watch a little child because, you know, they taste that milk for the first time or whatever, or at the very beginning of the feeding, it just kind of wakes them up, you know? 
And immediately all the emotions start going. They're trying to find that nipple, that bottle or whatever. They're trying to find where the milk source is and zero in on it. The jaws are moving. You can just see the little sucking motion. I mean, it's all programmed. God has designed that. They know that milk is what they want. They, they crave for that. All believers should, should long for, Peter says, and crave the Word of God, like a little baby does the, the milk of its mother's breast. And so, why? Because the milk of God's Word is absolutely essential to the life of a Christian. Just like that baby, if it doesn't get a, a regular diet of milk, that baby will die of malnutrition. Let me tell you something. The child of God, to have life needs to be in the Word of God. The child of God, in order to be healthy spiritually, must crave and desire the Word of God. And let me tell you something, salvation stimulates that spiritual taste for the Word of God. Don't take my word for it. Listen to the psalmist. I love Psalm 119 because Psalm 119 is in essence a, a love letter about the Word of God. Listen to the words of, the, of, of David as he writes Psalm 119 in verse 97. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Is that what you say when you open up the Word of God? What about there in Psalm 119 in verses 103 where Peter, I mean, the David says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Be honest with yourself. How much does your soul desire, yearn for, crave the Word of God? You miss a day of reading the Word of God, of being in, your word, in the Word of God devotionally. Is there a craving in your soul? Oh, listen, the Word of God is precious to the child of God. Once we have truly tasted the rich and wonderful grace of God, the sweet flavor of His eternally pure and absolutely satisfying Word, drizzled with the glorious grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our souls are awakened with a spiritual appetite for nothing but the Word. And nothing can satisfy a Christian's soul desire than the Word of God. Oh, Christians try to substitute other things for it as if we can. Music and entertainment and all kinds of things. Subjective experiences and everything that supposedly give us a spiritual high or whatever. But ladies and gentlemen, nothing will satisfy the hunger of your soul but the Word of God. This is the only food and nourishment that God has Prescribe for His people. Please don't try to substitute something else for that. Is there hunger for you in your life for the Word of God? Is it manifested in your daily activities? You know, my family was pretty concerned there for a while when I suddenly lost my taste for barbecue. And you have to understand the history behind that because I could live on barbecue seven days a week. I mean, with just no other food. I, I, little Richards across the street owes the existence to me because I prayed a barbecue joint right here to our neighborhood. But, but that all of a sudden, I just lost my, tabor, my, my flavor, my taste for barbecue. My family was really beginning to get concerned. I think they were considering talking to my doctor. But, you know, eventually I started reacquiring my taste, and I, I'm liking it pretty good now. But you know what? I get very concerned for a person who calls himself a Christian and there's no evidence of a love for and a desire for and a yearning for the Word of God. 
If there's no hunger in your heart for the Word of God, brother or sister, let me tell you something. You might want to re-examine your relationship with the Lord because I promise you, coming to Jesus Christ and experiencing the power of the working of the Spirit of God in your life and salvation and a relationship with the Son of God and all the blessings and promises that go with that, it will generate in you a God-given hunger for the Word of God. So, prepare ourselves. Deal with the presence of sin. Get it out of your life. And then be fully nourished on the Word of God so that you will grow in your relationship, grow in your salvation. But then let's move on and talk about the believer's position. The believer's position, as we talked about the believer's preparation, let's look now at verse 4 and 5 as Peter moves moves along in this, this discussion of our relationship with Jesus And the church now, he says in verse 4, coming to Him, speaking of Christ, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also are, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Wow, Peter says a lot. Might I remind you, this is just a salty, seasoned seaman, a fisherman that is writing and and drawing upon prophecy with elegance and and, and powerfully making a a poetic or apologetic defense of the gospel and, and Jesus Christ and the church. I mean, it's amazing you talk about transformations. This is the Apostle Peter. And he's talking about Jesus as a living stone. You know, in the, in the Scriptures, a number of times God is referred to as a rock. I like to talk about God as my rock, my refuge. It speaks of the stability of God, the strength of God, the dependability of God. In Daniel, in chapter 2, you don't have to go back there, but you may recall in chapter 2 when Daniel was trying to, not trying to, he was interpreting that very difficult dream of King Nebuchadnezzar where the king saw this massive figurine of a human standing out there and, and it was made of gold and silver and bronze and clay. And, and, and in that vision, Daniel says, and there is the stone that was not hewn by human hands. Speaking of the divinity of that stone. And he says, that stone came against the feet of that image and crushed it. And he says, and that stone caused the whole statue to come crumbling down. And he says, and that stone grew and dominated the world. Speaking prophetically of the coming of the Messiah. The stone. And here Peter is describing Jesus in chapter 4 as the living stone. Jesus is the Christ he is the rock that lives. He, you know, I know oftentimes, I've never had a pet rock. Anybody here ever have a pet rock and you're not ashamed to confess it? I mean, it's okay. You know, I didn't think so. But I, I just, you know, how could you, how could you get excited about a rock? You know, come on, rock, I'll take you out now. Here, here's your water, rock. Uh, you, you see how crazy that is. 
But let me tell you something. Jesus was not a rock in the sense that we think about. Peter says he's a living stone. And the thing that makes Jesus living is the fact that he was once dead, crucified, buried in the tomb. And on the third day, by the power and the glory of God, he came to life. He was resurrected. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he too shall live. Listen, the rock that Peter's talking about is fully alive. Not only does he have life, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ, the living stone, is the giver of life. There is no life apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says we are drawn into an intimate abiding relationship with this living stone. I want you to capture the language that Peter's using. Coming to him. It's not like you just bump into him and into Jesus and say, oh, hey, Jesus. Or you have a brief encounter with Jesus. Oh, that was cool. No, 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 no. What Peter's implying when he's talking about coming to Him is abiding in Him, investing yourself in Him. As the Scripture says, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in Him. Ladies and gentlemen, when you come to Christ fully by faith, turning your back on sin and putting your full trust in Him as your Lord and Savior, you become one with Him. Your life is in the the living stone. And you become... That's what it says. You become a living stone. That's amazing. Peter talked about the paradox of this living stone, Jesus as the rock. And as I said, he talked about it from Scripture. If I could just go back into Acts in chapter 4. You know what was happening in the book of Acts. At the very beginning was a Pentecost where the Holy Spirit was poured out. You know how the, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, were after Peter and John and, and the, the apostles and trying to forbid them with preaching about Jesus and His resurrection? And, and you remember how Peter healed a, a lame man? And it so amazed the people that multitudes of people were led to come to be a part of the church at the witness of such power, demonstration of the power of God. But, but here is Peter. He's under arrest. He and John. They're standing there before the Sanhedrin. This is the same murderous bunch that had had Jesus crucified. And listen to what Peter's saying in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 10. He says, let it be known to you all. That's why I know Peter was a southerner. <laughs> and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, see Peter didn't mention any words, whom God raised from the dead, By him, this man, speaking of the lame man that's now walked, it's by him, Christ, this man stands before you here today, whole. But listen to what he says. As he begins to quote prophecy, Psalm 118, verse 22. He says, this, speaking of Christ, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is speaking all the way back in Acts. In that first, in that sermon to the Sanhedrin, he describes Jesus Christ as not only the stone that is rejected, but he's also the stone that God has raised up and given life. As we draw to Christ, as he calls you to him, And by faith you 
enter into that intimate personal relationship with him. Jesus said in Matthew 28, uh, Matthew 11, verse 28 and 30, he says, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says, check me out, if you will. Take, get to know me. See that I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. Jesus beckons, come to me. Peter says, come into him. As to a living stone indeed rejected by men. But look what he says. The same stone that was rejected by men. The Messiah. Rejected by the Jews. Rejected by the Sanhedrin. Rejected by the Jewish people. Rejected by people down through the years. And still rejected today. Peter says the same person. The same Messiah. The same living stone that was rejected by men. Is the stone that was chosen by God. And precious to God. When did God choose Jesus to be the Messiah? When did Jesus choose Jesus to become the living stone? The cornerstone of the church, if you will. If you go back in chapter 1 and verse 20, you'll see. It says, Peter says, He, speaking of Christ, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Before the world was even created, God determined that Jesus Christ would be the Savior of the world. That He would come and He would offer Himself as the Messiah. And and some would reject Him, but He would be precious. Didn't God say when Jesus was baptized, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen, speaking of us, Peter goes on to talk about there in verse 5. He says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul picks up on that same concept. And in Ephesians, he elaborates on that in in, in a beautiful way. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, if you want to turn back there and read, you can. Or I'll read it and you can listen. But make a note, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. This is what Paul is saying in in reference to the same concept. In verse 19 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen to what he says in verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, talking about us, the church, the body of Christ, in whom you are also built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. What is Peter saying? What was Paul saying? They're saying that we as Christians, we as a church, we are the dwelling place of God. Take your mind away from the physical concept of a a physical building, brick and mortar and, and, and steel and wood. And see the spiritual temple of God that that the scripture describes and we are a part of it. When you come to Christ as a believer and you submit your life to Him, you become a living stone. His life is in you. He places you in the spiritual temple. And the purpose of the temple is what? It is to demonstrate the presence of God. It is the place of the activity of God. And that's what Peter is saying. We are. The church is described in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6 as the house of Christ. You know the beautiful thing is you look in there in that verse that Peter is talking about. He says on one hand you are the spiritual house. We are the temple. 
Christ dwells in his people. It's not this church building. It's not some fancy cathedral in London or in New York City or some other place in the world. I don't care how big and majestic and beautiful and ornate they are. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. The presence of God never has been, never will be since the resurrection of Jesus Christ dependent upon a building. Because the building is being built every time a man or woman or young person prays and puts their trust in Jesus Christ. The temple is continually being built. And you and I as the body of Christ, we demonstrate to the world looking around us that this is where God dwells. He dwells in us individually. Wherever you go, you are the temple of God. But when we come together collectively, it's amplified. But it's interesting because not only are we the temple, but look what he says. He says, you are a holy priesthood. It's a package deal. We are the temple in which the presence of God dwells, but we are also the priest of God. What do the priests do? They serve the Lord. They offered sacrifices that were pleasing to God. They represented the people to God. We serve God too. That's what he says, Peter says. We, we offer up spiritual sacrifices. I'm kind of glad that we don't have to deal with the goats and bulls and, and oxen and doves and all of that. That's kind of messy. I'm really, really glad we don't have to go in that direction. Besides, I think a lot of squeamish Baptists would probably fall by the wayside. No, 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 that's not what we do. We offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, you say, Pastor Charlie, what are the spiritual sacrifices? Now that I know that I, that I embody the, the indwelt presence of the Spirit of God, I am the temple of God, and then collectively with the church, I am the temple of God. What do I do that pleases God? Let me tell you what you do. When you offer praise to God, you're offering sacrifices of praise to the Lord. As, as Peter is saying, spiritual sacrifices. What other spiritual sacrifices do? When you exercise your spiritual gifts in serving the God and edifying and building up the body of Christ. When you do good to one another within the body of Christ. When you do good and share with those outside of the church in the name of Jesus Christ. You are exercising spiritual sacrifices as Peter is talking about. Listen, when you are out there and you are focusing on people who don't know Jesus Christ. And God is prompting you to engage them, to disciple them, to make them a disciple of Jesus Christ you are engaging in spiritual sacrifices every day of your life you can be engaged in spiritual sacrifices to God is that important it was to Paul in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 Paul says I therefore beseech you brethren by the mercies of God that you offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable unto God for this is God is this is our reasonable service to God you are a living sacrifice. You, you, don't, you know, God didn't put you on this earth and bless you as He has blessed you so that you can get rich, be popular, have things, accrue titles and everything so other people think something of yourself so you can live a life of pleasure and comfort. Folks, that's not what life is about. If that's your concept of living, you've missed it. You're living an empty life. You haven't even begun to discover the meaning of what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, when he says, I am come that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. Abundant life is a life that is lived with spiritual sacrifices to God. It's not what we get for ourselves. It's not what we do for ourselves. It's what we give to God through our service to God. Well, let's move on. Because we want to talk about the believer's promise. As we look further in verses 6 through 8. 
Peter says, therefore, it is also contained in the Scriptures. You see, Peter's right on prophecy. He's now getting ready to quote Isaiah 26, or 28, 16. That says, Behold, I lay in Zion, speaking of Jerusalem, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame or disappointed. Therefore, to him, to you who believe, he is precious. Huh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Just says that God said Jesus is precious to him. The same Jesus that is precious to God, ladies and gentlemen, is precious to you and me. He is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected, Peter's quoting it again out of Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And he quotes again, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. On one hand, the cornerstone is a mighty blessing. He's a blessing to our lives individually. He's a blessing to the life of the church. On the other hand, the same stone is a stone of stumbling upon which unbelieving, unregenerate, rebellious people will stumble upon and He will absolutely destroy them, shatter them. Isn't that amazing? The same stone that is so essential to the life of the believer and the life of the church becomes a stone that will absolutely destroy others. And I'll tell you why. Number one, for you and I, the benefits of building our church and our lives on the chief cornerstone is number one, we can trust Him. We can trust Him. Do you understand? Now, I'm not a builder. But those who are into building and understand construction will tell you the importance of the cornerstone of the building is not just that it bears weight of the building at that point of the corner, but the cornerstone is that very crucial stone that is almost the direction of the building. Every horizontal line of that building takes its origin from the cornerstone. Every vertical line of that building that is built is dependent upon lining up with the cornerstone. The cornerstone gives the building absolute symmetry and accuracy and strength and stability. Let me tell you something. When you choose to make Jesus Christ the cornerstone of your life and you align your life, your thinking, your attitudes, your actions, and your priorities by what the Bible teaches that Jesus says, if you align your life with the life of Christ, I can promise you, as he says there in the Scriptures, quoting out of Isaiah 28, 16, you will by no means be put to shame. There's no such thing as a child of God getting to heaven and saying, oh, I wish I hadn't put my faith faith in Christ. I wish I hadn't based my life upon the teachings of the scriptures. I wish I hadn't patterned my life after the life of Jesus Christ. No such thing. But I promise you there are millions upon millions of people even this day burning in the fires and the torment of a place called hell who are wishing with great deep regret and remorse, oh, if I had only seen, oh, if I had only known, oh, if I would only come to my senses and instead of living my life patterned after the world and chasing after all the, the, the lust of the flesh and the things of the people, if I would only known... Because, you see, they've fallen against that cornerstone in judgment and experience, and they will experience forever and ever without end absolute torment, destruction, judgment, hopelessness, 
You know, one of the things that we tip to do with the children and team kid on Sunday afternoons when we bring kids from the community here, we, we teach them a memory verse. I could have all the team kid staff stand up and they could quote it, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your ways straight. If we don't get, get anything else across to these boys and girls that come out of a pretty rough environment, if we don't get anything else across to these young minds, we want them to understand that boys and girls, God loves you. And you're precious in His sight. And He sent His Son to die on the cross for you to pay the price for your sins. And He has provided a way for you to have a good life, a sure life, a life that will enable you to live forever in a wonderful, glorious place called heaven. But you've got to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean upon your own understanding. Don't look to your friends. Don't look to the world. But put your trust fully in the cornerstone we call Jesus Christ. Pattern your family after Him. Pattern your life after Him. Pattern your career after Him. And you can be promised that when the storms of life come against your life, when the storms of life rage against your marriage and against your home and even against the church, you will stand because of the cornerstone. I close the message this morning. I hope it's still morning. I'm moving. I close the message with a challenge to you individually. Are you even a part of this dynamic, eternal, living, divine entity called the body of Christ. The holy temple. Because there's only one way to be implanted into the body of Christ and that is repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ and committing to follow Him obediently for the rest of your life and trusting in the blood that He shed on Calvary's cross to be the full remission of your sins. Have you made that commitment? I'm not talking about some emotional fleeting experience, raising your hand, signing a card, or walking an aisle. I'm talking about what Jesus talks about in Luke 9.23 when He says, If any man come after Me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow Me. Ladies and gentlemen, those are the people who see eternity in heaven. Those are the people who step into glory and see the face of the Lord. Those are the people who persevere for eternity in the presence of God. Are you one of those? Are you living with the constant confidence that you're a part of the body of Christ? If not, God may be speaking to your heart today. Maybe you understand that you pattern your life and you're patterning your life after the wrong things, materialism, selfish ambitions, lust, whatever. And you've not solidly, by faith, put your life on the cornerstone called Jesus Christ. I'm proud today to tell you that I know for a fact that with the wonderful leadership of those who are working with me as a pastoral team, we are absolutely solidly committed to lead this church to be based on Him and no one else. Christ and Christ alone. He is the cornerstone of this church and has been and will be till He comes again. What about you? What is your life based on? If Christ is speaking to your heart today and you know that you're off base, I invite you to come 
and surrender your life to Jesus Christ by faith. If He's leading you, God knows who He's choosing. If He's not, you'll know, you won't even experience anything. But you'll know it. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the Apostle Peter. Thank You for the power of Your Word. I thank You for these precious brothers and sisters, individuals who've come and they sat through this message. Lord, it's not what I say. It's what You speak to their hearts. It counts. I pray for anyone who's here today that's not a follower of Jesus Christ. I pray that You will move upon their hearts to turn to Christ as a cornerstone of their life. Lord, I pray for families represented, marriages represented here today, families, homes. I pray that every marriage, every home will be built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ solidly. Lord, I thank You that this church has made a commitment to not fall into the trap of entertainment or trying to follow the pattern of the culture to be popular as churches are considered to be popular today, but we understand for the sake of stability and, 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 and for the sake of, of being true to you that we have to make sure that we are based solidly on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Lord, I pray you speak to hearts here today. And work as you see fit. And we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 30 years ago, the group that assembled together, I don't know exactly where, somewhere here in the southeast side of Winston-Salem, coming out of Antioch Baptist Church, felt a deep conviction in the vision of a new church. They knew that God was raising them up, raising them up to start a new congregation, a new body of believers. As I, I wasn't there, strategically they couldn't invite me to come if they were going to consider me to be a pastor to the church. But I understand in that, that evening they met and they were discussing, amongst other things, and praying, what shall we name the church? This new church. This new Baptist church. And this passage of Scripture moved the heart of that group. A song had come out about that time entitled Jesus is a Cornerstone. And it is and has been the theme song, if you will, if a church can have a theme song. If I can get our technical crew to pull that out, I'd like to end the service by letting you enjoy this. And I pray that it will remind you of the importance of the one that that God sent into this world to give His life, to pay the price for our sins. He and He alone is the chief cornerstone.